The immune system is really your white blood cells. They don't do very well in an oil slick. And the white blood cells are trying to make antibodies, they're trying to move around, and the more grease there is in your diet, the more grease there ends up in your blood, and it just interferes with the white blood cells. Simple as that. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us coast to coast in the U.S. and in more than 150 countries. Hi to everyone listening in Fort Myers Beach, Florida, Santa Maria, California, and Porto, Portugal. We appreciate you helping to make the world a healthier place. This is episode 56 of season 5, number 355 overall. Are you the kind of person who's always getting sick? It's cold after cold, and when everyone else in your house is running around healthy as could be, you are stuck sick in bed. Well, that's not fair. But have you ever wondered why? Why that might be happening? It could be that your immune system just isn't working as well as it should. And while there are many reasons why that could be, one of the biggest could be what you're eating. Indeed, your diet can play a big role in your body's ability to fight off infection. And we will be talking about how all of that works today with Dr. Neil Barnard. He is the author of Your Body in Balance, and he joined us on the exam room live this week. We do that every Wednesday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on the Physicians Committee's YouTube channel and Facebook page. And we had an amazing turnout this week as well. Lots of exam roomies were tuned in to find out the foods that could give their immune system a boost and also which foods actually weaken your immune system right? You don't want to eat the things that suppress it. And we went well beyond just oranges for vitamin C and got into some green foods too that turn your body into a lean, mean, infection-fighting machine. Also today, tons of questions from the doctor's mailbag, everything from autoimmune disorders to arsenic and brown rice and eating bread every day. Is that a good idea? We're going to find out. But before we boost our immune systems and open up that doctor's mailbag, I want to say a huge thank you to the Gregory J. Ryder Memorial Fund for their support of the exam room live and the physician's committee. That support is helping to raise our health IQs and makes this episode possible. The Gregory J. Ryder Memorial Fund supports organizations like the Physicians Committee that carry on Greg's love for animals by promoting plant-based health and working to end animal abuse while emphasizing programs that promote systemic change and also benefit people. You can visit the Gregory J. Ryder Memorial Fund online at GregoryRyderFund.org. That's Gregory Ryder spelled R-E-I-T-E-R Fund.org. And now, <coughs> bless you, let's talk immunity. Give the immune system a jump start with Dr. Neil Barnard. Good to see you. Good to see you, Chuck. So when we're talking about the immune system and somebody's diet, obviously a lot goes into how well somebody's immune system is functioning, but in terms of their diet, how big of a role does that play in this? Big role. Um, the immune system is uh, really your white blood cells. They're coursing around through your bloodstream. They're looking for viruses. They're looking for bacteria, anybody who doesn't belong there. And like anybody, they, they don't do very well in an oil slick. 
So let's say you're eating a lot of greasy food and the white blood cells are trying to make antibodies. They're trying to move around. Um, and the more grease there is in your diet, the more grease there ends up in your blood. And it just interferes with the white blood cells. So kind of simple as that. So researchers have looked at this in a couple different ways. One is they'll take blood samples. They'll put them in a lab dish and they'll add fat to them. And they find that the more fat they add, the worse the white blood cells work. Then they'll take volunteers and they'll start an IV and they'll put fatty infusions into their blood. Same story. And then they'll finally just say, okay, you're not in a Petri dish and you don't need an IV. What if you're just at McDonald's or somewhere and you're eating fatty foods? And so in testing the foods themselves, yes, fatty foods impair immune function. So the very same diet you wanted to follow, a really healthy, low-fat plant-based diet, it's good for so many other things, but it's also good for your immune system. So let's uh, get to some specifics here. Sienna is wondering, what are the best foods to actually boost that immune system? A um, couple of things. Well, we've talked about avoiding fats. Uh, avoiding dairy is an important thing too. If you're talking about a respiratory illness, colds and that sort of thing, dairy products often leave people with sort of the scientific term is grunge. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> We're talking about phlegm in your respiratory tree. Um, and, and many people will see this after uh, a dairy rich meal, though they'll, they'll even cough a little bit. Um, so getting away from dairy is a, a good idea. And then what things to add or emphasize, uh, you know, the vitamin C story, Linus Pauling, who won two Nobel prizes, um, was a big proponent of vitamin C. And since his demise, the research has been a little mixed, but I have to say, I think the best evidence suggests that people who get more vitamin C do better. Um, and where this really came out strongly is in athletes, where athletes who have more vitamin C in their diets, they tend to do better. Now I should raise a couple of points. Meat doesn't have vitamin C at all. Meat eaters get zero vitamin C from what the, the meat that they're eating. Plants have some vitamin C and not just citrus fruits that kind of made it famous, but even broccoli and green vegetables have some vitamin C. So that's all good. And Linus Pauling said, yeah, sure, do that, but take pills too. So some people will have a gram of vitamin C per day and up to more heroic doses. Nobody really knows the, the right amount, but, but having some vitamin C is probably a good idea. A couple of other things. Um, vitamin D comes from the sun, good for absorbing calcium, probably reduces the risk of respiratory infections a little bit as well. And the one that's kind of on everybody's mind these days is garlic. And I have to say there was a really good study that uh, a lot of us were looking at just when COVID was arriving in what, 2020, that researchers looked at garlic supplements and they just tracked people's infections, not, not necessarily coronavirus, but just getting colds. And there was actually a, quite a profound effect that the number of sick days people took was way down in the garlic group. Um, with all of these studies, you've got to be, I think, a little skeptical because people want good news about things they want to eat anyway, like garlic. Um, and also the manufacturers, sometimes I think they tweak the results a little, or they, they tend to not want to publish negative results, I guess is what I'm saying. Nonetheless, um, I've been impressed by the, some, the quality of these research studies, and I think there's something to it. I'm curious, you mentioned broccoli among those foods there. Uh, people a lot of times overlook that as being the vitamin C powerhouse that it is, but do you think that the vitamin C that's in there is also working in conjunction with all of the other vitamins and nutrients that come with the broccoli to really help get that immune system kicked into high gear? Oh, what a good point, Chuck. You know, 
Yes, you're absolutely right. Um, broccoli has vitamin C. It's got uh, also some beta carotene, which you wouldn't think of because it's not orange um, until it's sat on your kitchen counter for like six weeks while you were away on vacation. Um, but, um, but there is some vitamin C. There's some beta carotene in there too. And there's one other thing. This will not be on the test. Um, all the cruciferous vegetables, broccoli, kale, collards, cauliflower, have a special ingredient called sulforaphane. And sulforaphane has a different action that's very cool. Your liver is all the time trying to get rid of impurities. That's your liver's job. It's a filter. And the sulforaphane allows the enzymes in the liver, which are called phase two enzymes, to work faster and more effectively to get rid of toxins. What that means is that if you have these vegetables every day, they're giving you a lot of the good stuff, beta carotene, vitamin C, others, but they're also helping you to clean the bad stuff out of your body by heightening the liver's ability to filter them out. So uh, Renee emailed a, a question in. It was kind of a two-parter. She was, one, asking about vitamin C and if you have mega doses of that, if that could help you get over a cold faster, which we've already addressed. But she was also then wondering about these little over-the-counter supplements like emergency that have those high doses. Is that something that people should be turning to or, or uh, should they be going for the oranges, the citrus fruits, or the broccoli, as we've discussed? Well, the foods are the place to start. Um, for sure, because they, they have not only the vitamin C that you do need and in, in, in significant quantities, but they have everything else that you need. And the produce also doesn't have what you don't need. It doesn't have the fat that's going to clog up your, your uh, bloodstream and make your white blood cells uh, malfunction. However, um, Linus Pauling said, if you really want to be protected against colds, he thought you couldn't get enough, even if you're eating lots of fruits and vegetables. So at the time that he died, he was taking a huge amount. He was taking about 18 grams of vitamin C per day. And, and you would never get there with foods. And in fact, a lot of people were afraid he was going to be giving himself kidney stones from all the vitamin C that he was taking. He, he did okay. Um, but the, the bottom line is, yes, start with foods. And then you can supplement in addition to the foods if you want, but not instead of. So Shannon brings up an interesting point. We, we know that those uh, comfort foods, those high fat foods that you were talking about, they work to suppress the immune system, but isn't it kind of a vicious cycle? Because a lot of times when we don't feel good, we turn to those comfort foods in hopes of feeling a little bit better. But based off of what it is that you're saying, if you go to Dairy Queen and you get that big blizzard when you're feeling kind of rotten, wouldn't that actually then perpetuate the, the cycle of rotten that you're in at the moment? You said it, Chuck, uh, two issues. One is you're eating fatty stuff, whether it's dairy fat, meat fat, fry or grease, and the fat interferes with your immune system. You will eventually recover, presumably, but why slow it down by impairing your immune system? Second thing, as I mentioned earlier, not only do those foods have the fat that's gonna interfere, they don't have what you need. So when you're feeling crummy and you have a burger instead of the plant foods, as I mentioned, there is zero vitamin C in meats. And if that's where your calories are coming from, you're filling up without giving your body what it needs. You know, some of the exam roomies in the chat room right now, they're like, yeah, but exercise too. exercise, you know, keep the body moving. That also helps to strengthen the immune system. There's a connection there as well, isn't there? Well, yes, but exercise is a double-edged sword. Um, when we look at runners, distance runners, in some cases, they're having more colds than other people. You think, how can that be? You're in such good, uh, good shape. 
Well, what the, the shape that they're in is good cardiovascular shape, meaning their heart is strong and their blood vessels are responsive. Uh, but in some cases, they don't take particularly good care of themselves. There are some distance runners who are frankly underdressed. And so they're, they're, they're cold for the first 15 uh, minutes of the run until their body heats up. And sometimes the recovery stuff, have you seen what sometimes they serve at the finish line of the marathon? Yes, the dairy industry is out there. And what they're saying is chocolate milk. That's your recovery thing. Candy bars all up and down. So um, there are better recovery foods than that. So running alone is, doesn't make you magic. Um, running is good. It's, it's good in every way, and including for immunity. But you've got to take care of yourself as well. I remember when I was a, a reporter, at one time I was assigned to cover the Marine Corps Marathon and at the finish line, I was expecting literally just like bowls of fresh fruit, vegetables, salad, what wraps, healthy wraps, whatever the case may be. But what they had in addition to the chocolate milk, as you were just mentioning, was stacks of pizza, just, I mean, mountain high of pizza. And that's what the runners were being served at the finish line was not plant-based whatsoever at this time. But I remember kind of thinking like, that is literally the last thing I would think that you would be wanting to eat or these healthier runners would even want after they finish running 26.2 miles. Didn't seem quite right to me. You know, everybody's been working day after day, week after week, month after month to get ready for this big race. And when they hit the finish line, there's some people who think, well, I'm glad that's over. Now I can pick out and get fat and, and you know, and, and really let my body get hurt. Um, what they really need, you know, to tell you the truth, they need a banana. They need to hand it to you with a glass of water. What, what I mean is your body has been burning glucose um, and it, your glycogen stores in your liver and your muscles are pretty much used up at the end of that marathon. And so you need to restock, uh, restock them, assuming you're going to be physically active uh, in the days to come. And so uh, nature packed uh, the healthy glucose that you need into these really simple snack foods that, uh, that we call fruit. What about uh, somebody who's battling cancer right now? We have uh, Jasmine who's watching on YouTube today says at 1153, I need to strengthen my immune system because I have cancer throughout uh, my body. So as somebody's going through that, do the same principles that we've been talking about here apply or what are some other things that they might want to do to help the immune system out? Well, first of all, I'm sorry to hear that you're dealing with this challenge. I hope everything goes as well as humanly possible. Um, you obviously will want to get good medical advice. Let's, let's start there. And if for whatever reason you're not getting the medical advice that you expect or that you really want, don't hesitate to get a second or even a third medical opinion. Always good advice and doctors expect it. Don't, don't be shy about that. With regard to food, yes, the principles that we've been describing, generally speaking, are helpful. But when a person is, is choosing foods to help in their battle for cancer, we've seen slight differences depending on the type of cancer that we're talking about. Um, but there have been a number of studies with breast cancer, for example, where women who have had a diagnosis of breast cancer, if they avoid uh, fatty foods, avoid dairy, if they eat more soy products, they do better. Soy is, is, is noticeably helpful. Um, with regard to breast cancer and avoiding the fatty junk uh, seems to be helpful as well. A similar pattern probably applies to prostate cancer. What these have in common is that they're hormone-related cancers as opposed to, say, um, leukemia or lymphoma, which is a blood cancer and where we really don't have much data one way or the other. 
With regard to the di digestive cancers, uh, stomach, uh, pancreatic, colorectal cancer, probably the same thing applies, although the best evidence we have is with colorectal. Let's uh, turn back to kind of the supplement area. Uh, we talked about vitamin C, but Tracy at 1214 is wondering about zinc. Tracy says that they shy away from it because sometimes it can give uh, them a stomach ache. Um, zinc and immunity, what does the research say? Um, where we see probably most of these studies are on those little supplements that a person, they got a sniffle. They woke up this morning, they got a sniffle, and they go over to the local drugstore and they get the ones that are zinc lozenges and you dissolve one in your mouth and you have them every couple of hours. And they do actually seem to not, they're not used as a preventive. They shorten the cold you've already got and they do seem to work um, for that. And if you wanna hedge your bets, you take a zinc one, a, a zinc, then an hour or two later, you might take a vitamin C and later on you take a zinc. People do this all different ways. But the idea is that they work by different mechanisms. So. You can take some zinc and you can take some vitamin C if you want to want to do that. And then if, if your immune system is adequate, you're going to get over the cold no matter what you do. Nicole at 12.13, greetings. Well, hi, Nicole. Uh, what are your thoughts about going on a raw food diet to boost immunity and improve your health and jumpstart the old plant-based lifestyle? I think raw foods are fine um, and, and a good idea. And we should have more raw foods in our diet because, frankly, people kind of neglect them. But I have uh, one caution, which is we're not really too sure which are the best raw foods to have. And what I mean by that is, um, let's say a person makes a big salad and they put some tomatoes on top of it. Um, well, tomatoes are a North American food. That's where they started. But human beings aren't North American, <laughs> aren't North American natives. Human beings started out in Eastern Africa. And the, the reason I'm saying that is people say, well, the foods that are best for our biology should be those that we kind of evolved with. And there are certain things like potatoes, um, chocolate, uh, peanuts, tomatoes, uh, and even beans, which are really North American foods that human beings kind of came into as they uh, moved into the Americas, um, you know, some thousands of years ago. Um, first with obviously people who we now refer to as Native Americans and then later with European invaders who came in later. But all these foods were, um, were in the grand evolution of things, relatively new for our, for us. That said, um, when people have more raw foods in their diet, vegetables, fruits, they do well. Um, some of them are not digestible raw, like beans, you're gonna have a lot of trouble digesting them. You either have to cook them or sprout them. Um, and I would suggest that you not make your diet exclusively raw um, because you might find it challenging to get adequate calories that way. A lot of she was wondering as well, like if somebody was to do the exclusively raw diet, you know, how long is that sustainable? How long is that healthy for a person? I think that you kind of just answered that question, but have you seen any research that can pinpoint a specific timeline? No, and I, I have to tell you, Chuck, I don't really know the answer to this question, and I've often wondered this very same thing. There just aren't data to answer it. Here, here's what I'm getting at we did not evolve with sterno. Um, you know, animals are all eating raw food. And that's true for chimpanzees and orangutans and gorillas. They're not cooking things. And they're not going to the Roy Rogers carryout. Everything they're eating is raw. So you'd think we would have to be able to do the same. And that's why I come back to what were the foods that were there in Kenya or Ethiopia or wherever it was that, that human beings kind of began. Um, and what were those foods? And there's sort of no way of telling. 
but my presumption is that yes, you should be able to do really well on them. However, nowadays when people go on raw diets and they're picking foods out, they often find that they're not quite hitting uh, the calories that they might need. Um, but different people can try different things and see how it works out. Um, no matter what you do, don't forget that you do need vitamin B12. This is not optional. You got to do it. Yes, it's supplemented to, to some foods like nutritional yeast, but you're probably not getting them reliably. So do take a supplement of vitamin B12. Let's look at the immune system from a different perspective and talk autoimmune disorders. Holly is wondering whether diet can actually help with them as well. Oh my goodness sakes, yes. Um, and this, I think where this really jumped into public consciousness was with um, Venus Williams. When she came down with a condition called Sjogren's disease, that's a, a condition where your mouth is very dry and everything becomes dry and, and you lose your energy and, and her tennis game just tanked. And it's autoimmune, meaning that your own immune system Instead of attacking viruses, it's attacking you. It's attacking your own body tissues. Um, so she thought, all right, let me get away from the foods that might make that worse. Get away from dairy, get away from meat. She started a completely plant-based diet. She improved rapidly. She got her game back. Um, and we've seen this with lots of other conditions. Rheumatoid arthritis, probably the granddaddy of them because it's more common. Um, but also hypothyroidism and hyperthyroidism. These are in some cases autoimmune and we don't have really good uh, randomized trials of people using a diet for either one of those. But we do have lots of people who have had hypothyroidism, went on a plant-based diet and improved. Do talk to your doctor. Don't cancel your doctor's appointment. Do follow your doctor's advice, but you're going to eat breakfast no matter what. So getting away from the foods that stimulate the immune system in a harmful way is a good idea. That's dairy, other animal products at the top of the list. Lots of exam roomies are hanging out with us, raising their health IQs live today. Annette, Lee Evans, Thomas, Roller Girl, Tofu Tuesday, Diane, Mona, hi to everyone who's hanging out today and asking so many great questions in the comment and in the chat. Appreciate you guys being here. Um, Dr. Barnard, we've talked a lot about um, immunity, obviously. Um, spoke a little bit about COVID-19, but I, I want to ask you uh, a little bit more about this. I saw an interesting study this week um, where doctors were actually, well, researchers had come to a conclusion that doctors should be talking to their patients more about eating a healthier diet and leading a healthier lifestyle, especially after they've been diagnosed with COVID-19. They're on that road to recovery. And this research showed that um, there was a really heightened risk of developing diabetes after somebody was diagnosed with COVID. Are you familiar with this study? Yeah. In fact, there have been a number of studies. Um, there, there were European studies that showed this. Um, and there was a big study in the U.S. as well. And they looked at different demographic groups, younger people, older people, people with sort of mild COVID and people with more severe COVID. And bottom, bottom line is this. You had COVID, you recovered. In the days, weeks, maybe even months that follow, for whatever reason, diabetes is more likely. It's not type one, it's type two. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's not huge. I mean, we're talking about maybe 1% of people or something like that. One to 2% of people who have COVID are gonna end up with diabetes as a result. But it's, it's something, I mean, you, you don't wanna be there. You don't wanna be in that, in that, in that group. Um, and, and that's much higher than you would have of a control group who didn't have 
COVID, if you just track them, they're, they're not going to get diabetes um, anywhere near that, that frequently. So the question is, is what's going on? And it does not look like the coronavirus is killing off the pancreas. It's not stopping your body from making insulin. What I think is happening is that it's stopping the cells of your body from responding to insulin. It's aggravating insulin resistance, probably. Um, and so what do you do? Well, we learned a whole long time ago that diet is important, first of all, for recovery from coronavirus in general. Uh, we were suspected that as soon as the virus came in and all the data have confirmed that, that the more your diet is plant-based, the less severe of illness you're going to have. But this is exactly the same kind of diet that you want to prevent diabetes. Avoid the animal products, focus on plant foods, keep the oils low. That allows your cells to be insulin sensitive. So whether you can actually prevent that COVID induced diabetes, nobody's done a research study like that, but we and others have shown that the same kind of diet changes that we've been talking about during this entire program, um, that they do seem to greatly reduce, of develop, reduce the risk of developing diabetes in general. And so we want to put it to work. Uh, I, you know, there's part of me that's impressed with the researchers here, kind of impressing upon those who are looking at this study to say, look, you know, we really should be talking more about diet instead of just, um, you know, prescribing pills all the time, right? So trying to hit that that underlying cause. That hasn't always been the case. I would imagine over the years, um, especially maybe in the last decade or so, you've seen more and more people turn toward um, making sure that people are eating properly to improve their health as opposed to um, just going the traditional medicine route. Do you think overall we are gravitating more toward that preventative uh, type of medicine versus where we are today where basically everything is done through a prescription pad? Um, I, th I think we're seeing progress um, in the sense that, it, it, first of all, patients want it. They're not so keen on a doctor saying, here's another prescription and another prescription. You, you know, that doesn't make you want to jump up and hug your doctor. Um, uh, patients really want to get information about what can they do in their own lives? How can they make a diet adjustment to help them? That's all clearly true. That said, we've seen huge gaps patient goes to the doctor with a high cholesterol. 90% of cases are caused by the food that people are eating. And the doctors tend to, to reach for the Lipitor prescription really quickly. But by, but by that, I mean they know that statins will drive your cholesterol down, and so they write a prescription for it. The problem with that is not only is that perhaps an unnecessary medication for many of the people, but it doesn't address the fact that the person's on a diet that's going to, over time, lead also to a higher risk of cancer, probably Alzheimer's, um, many other conditions that you're not going to be able to attack by just throwing a statin at them. So we need a broader approach that includes diet. And I have to tell you, Chuck, um, I had a lot of personal frustration when COVID came in. We could, right out of the box, you remember this, when, when you and I were talking as, as the coronavirus was spreading from China, then into Europe, and we saw this in France, we saw it in the US, that those people who um, had excess body weight were more likely to get severe COVID, more likely to die. Those people who had diabetes, same story. Those people with hypertension, same story. We were making a plea. Let's get our diet together, get it together now. Lose what weight you can, get your diabetes under better control if you can, get your blood pressure down if you can, choose healthy foods. And the medical community in general 
for whatever reason, and, 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 and the governmental community, whether it was federal, state, local, anybody, they did not want to bring that message forward. They were so preoccupied with, and perhaps understandably so, with wash your hands, wear your mask, get your um, hand sanitizer, and then when you had vaccines, get vaccines. That all makes sense, I understand. But you're gonna eat, and you should be choosing the foods that will boost your immune strength, reduce your risk of diabetes and these other things, or if you have them, to get them under as best control as you can. And it wasn't until about two years into the pandemic that the research came out and basically just said, I told you so. Foods clearly play a role in your risk of severe COVID. And, and so it's, it is something that should have been sort of job one at the very beginning of the pandemic. Yeah, I will never forget. We were doing the live shows every single day and I was keeping such close tabs on the data, especially out of New York, where that was kind of uh, the epicenter for COVID um, in in the U.S. for a while. And the state there and, and the city of New York even did just such a great job of publishing data about the COVID patients and all of the comorbidities that they had. And we're talking about the same chronic illnesses that we have been talking about now for years, you know, uh, diabetes, heart disease, cancer, Alzheimer's. And we're seeing like such high uh, prevalence of these illnesses among the COVID-19 patients, it goes to exactly, as you said, that no surprise two years later that the research bore out, hey, told you so. And a lot of these are the conditions that can be improved, prevented, reversed uh, just by eating that healthy diet. Yeah, and, and who wants to say, I told you so. I mean, it's the, I've had exactly the same thoughts spinning in my head uh, for the past two years. Um, I, you don't wanna be right uh, about this in, in a way. Um, had what, what we were doing here in Washington and, and elsewhere was we were making pleas with the mayor's office, the health department. They were issuing COVID advisories every day. And we said, don't just tell people to wash their hands. You've got to also give good, simple information about food choices that could get your diabetes under control so that when the coronavirus has come, come in, um, you're better protect, protected. And really, for whatever reason, um, they just couldn't see their way clear to doing that. But much as I don't want to say I told you so, what I, what I do think we should do is draw a lesson from it. Um, it's not just coronaviruses. We've got obesity and diabetes and high risk of, of diet-related cancers. All of these things are taking new victims now. And the fact that we've been dealing with them for a long, long time and they're not the new kid on the block anymore doesn't mean that we don't have to take them seriously. We do. And so what that means is we should treat them like an emergency too. If not for us, for our spouse, for our partner, for our friends, for our children, let's make sure that people are not just kind of laughing these things off on their way to go to going to the golden arches. We've got to treat these things like emergencies too. I want to share this comment with you from uh, Skimmer Goo uh, at 1228. Uh, they say, hey, Dr. Barnard, I wanted to tell you that I am currently in medical school and you are my inspiration. I've been vegan for a year thanks to your content and it is the best decision that I have ever made. So that's that's a big win right there. Oh, that's nice to hear. And um, let me say uh, congratulations. Your patients are going to be lucky to have you as their doctor. No question about it. Uh, keep keep me informed there, uh, Skimmer Goo. Uh, would love to know uh, when you graduate. We'll celebrate you here on the show. Um, I want to switch gears and do uh, a completely different kind of question, but one that we've gotten just week after week after week. Uh, Dat here is wondering, uh, how concerned should somebody be about arsenic in their brown rice? 
Um, probably not particularly concerned, but let me, let me give you the longer answer. Um, the rice, like all grains, are grown in the soil and they pick up whatever elements are in the soil. And sometimes that's good. You know, the iron or calcium that's in the ground will get into plants and, and our body uses that. But arsenic is an element as well and it's in the ground. And, and I think some of the blame here goes to the chicken farmers who for decades and decades used um, arsenicals to deworm the chickens. And so we, we have pollution with arsenic there too. But anyway, um, plants can pick it up and, and rice can. Um, how, it, however, the, the, the concern that, that, that is theoretically present is that arsenic can increase risk of cancer. However, we've done lots and lots of studies and you don't see any increased cancer risk among rice eaters. If anything, it's quite the opposite, um, that you see reductions in risk. So it doesn't seem to be a problem. That said, if you want to, um, to uh, maybe make some healthy choices, it doesn't matter too much if it's brown or white. The reason I say that is that the brown covering of, of, of the brown rice, that's the fiber that, in that little brown cap, and the arsenic does seem to concentrate a little bit more there than in the, the rice grain. So you'd think brown rice might be higher in arsenic, but it tends to be for some reason less absorbable. So it kind of just goes through you if it's in the brown rice. Um, that's the first thing. The second thing is that you can choose where you buy it. Um, different soil has different arsenic content. Um, it, it looks like the rice that comes from California, the rice that comes from India, the rice that comes from Pakistan, probably the cleanest uh, rice that we see. And then some people will, when they're cooking rice, they'll soak it for a little while, um, pour off the soaking water, uh, sometimes cook it with extra water, pour off that water, and that will remove some of the unwanted elements there. So you can put those to work. But my, my big concern is that if a person is fearful of the tiny traces that they're going to get, that they might end up neglecting this otherwise really healthy food. Don't forget that when Japan, back in the 60s, 70s, early 80s, when they had a predominantly rice-based diet, huge amounts of rice, they were the skinniest, longest-lived people on the planet. And when fast food chains came in and their rice production started to plummet and their meat, dairy started to go up, everything got worse. Heart disease, uh, breast cancer rates went way up, diabetes, and many other things. So, so rice is uh, overall a healthy food, and I don't think that it's uh, a, a useful idea to diminish it as a result of that, of that particular concern. A couple more quick hellos here. I want to say hi to Annette, who's tuned in today. Michael Askew said that uh, he made it before the end of the show. Glad that you're here. Uh, Australian Aboriginal is here live, maybe for the first time. And if you are, in fact, in Australia right now, that is a big commitment, because I believe it is the middle of the night there. And uh, Rutger is checking in from the Netherlands as well. Uh, so glad that you guys are all here. And Starchivore wins the Name of the Day Award. Um, <laughs> oh, man. I love it so much. Uh, okay, plant-based by 30. This one comes to us on Instagram. You can send me your questions there as well, at Chuck Carroll, WLC. Oh, man, a lot of people are going to love this one. Is it okay to eat bread every day? And if so, what is the healthiest bread that you can eat? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that. Um, you know, many people got afraid of bread because of fad diets. The Atkins diet said, you're heavy because of bread. And, and the funny thing was that those books came out at the same time as a book came out saying that French women don't get fat. And what are they eating? Huge amounts of baguettes all day long. 
Uh, bottom line, uh, starchy foods do not cause uh, weight gain. It's and bread is fine. Um, if you smear butter all over the top or put bologna in between on your sandwich, then it's not so fine. The fillings are the high fat part. Um, which are the best ones? You're looking for a vegan bread, of course, a plant-based bread. Um, and if you're busily reading labels in the store and it's driving you crazy to which bread is which, uh, quick tip, the rye bread, always vegan. Pumpernickel bread, always vegan. Um, they don't use dairy, you know, there's not butter and milk salads in them at all. And then apart from that, go for something that's simple, that doesn't have a lot of fat added, and you're going to be fine. Is it safe to eat bread every day? Absolutely. All right. A couple of more uh, quick ones. We'll start with Phoenix. Do coconut cream and coconut milk have any health benefits? No. <laughs> Just throw them away. Um, they have been so heavily marketed. And by the way, what they are, if, if you've never had this, it's not like somebody sticks a hole in a coconut and puts in a straw and you're drinking that watery stuff out of it. Um, coconut milk, coconut cream, what they are is you take the the, the, the meat of the coconut, the pulp of the coconut, you puree that and you can make it fattier or less fatty. The coconut cream is fattier, the coconut milk is slightly less fatty, but still there's a lot of fat in all of them and the fat is mostly saturated fat, the one linked to Alzheimer's disease and heart disease. And heart disease. Um, I would strongly suggest you consume no coconut fat at all and no palm oil at all. Those are the two plant fats that unlike all the other plant fats, will raise your cholesterol, they're really high in saturated fat. And yes, they're marketed. Yes, there's all kinds of ridiculous health claims. Yes, they'll put things on the package to draw you in. Yes, they use them in things like Impossible Burger. That's not for you. Um, you don't want that. Lisette is wondering, uh, how can we find a doctor near us that knows about plant-based nutrition? Uh, Lisette, the first thing I would suggest here um, would be to log on to barnardmedical.org. Telemedicine visits are available for a large part of the country there with uh, our doctors and dietitians that work there. Um, so barnardmedical.org is the web address for that, or you can call 202-527-7500 to schedule an appointment, get that full list of states where services are available. So uh, I would start there. And, uh, and hopefully we can get you some help, Lisette. Uh, final question today, Dr. Barnard, comes to us from Christina, a uh, special one because she is joining us as well for uh, the very first time here live. And she says, since I went vegan, I have had a lot of bloating and gas. Is there something that I can do about that? Well, first of all, you made a good decision to go vegan. And if you're having that side effect, um, it's not caused by a vegan diet in general, it's caused by specific foods. And there are two, two foods that you should think about. First is the bean group. Beans can cause gassiness. And sometimes people think, if I eat this much steak to replace it, I need this much beans. That's a lot. And so that will cause more gassiness. It's dose related. So have a smaller dose. And secondly, make sure they're really well cooked. There should be no al dente beans. Cook them until they're really, really soft. Start with small amounts and you'll find that your body kind of adjusts like your gut bacteria are saying okay i got it i'll take it from here and then you can increase from there uh, the other group that once in a while will cause a problem is the cruciferous vegetables um, you went to a party and you had the broccoli but it was all uncooked on the little appetizer tray with the hummus dip and for the cruciferous vegetables if you cook them until they're soft they're much more digestible 
You know, I love doing these live shows. And coming up August 18th through the 20th at the International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine, we are going to be doing live shows for three straight days. I mean, we are tapping into 30 of the greatest speakers in the world of health and nutrition, uh, literally from around the world. That's at the International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine. Just a few seats still remaining. If you would like to join us in Washington, D.C. for that, you can log on. You see the web address right now on your screen, pcrm.org slash ICNM. Uh, Dr. Barnard, so glad to be back in person. I know the exam room playing a small part in this, but we are going to see just hundreds of people uh, there really just soaking up all of this great information. And the list of speakers this year is just, it's off the charts good. We are really, really uh, super thrilled. It's been two years of virtual. Now we're back actually in person. Uh, we're going to be appropriately socially distanced. and We're going to take all of all the normal precautions. So what that means is we're reducing the number of people who can actually attend. Um, so if you if you would like to um, to uh, to register, please do. We've got you've got about a month, but we're going to be hitting that that magical limit before too long. But yeah, we, we've got tr some tremendous speakers. Dean Ornish will be speaking. Uh, Rita Redberg from the Endojama Internal Medicine will be kicking us off on Thursday morning. We're really excited uh, that she's going to be with us. Kim Williams uh, is going to be there. We have three speakers talking about COVID and various aspects of nutrition, absolute leaders in the field, and many, many other things. Um, plus, the best food of any food uh, science conference you have ever been to because we're gonna be unveiling universal meals. We're gonna be unveiling them Thursday at lunchtime and it's gonna be really, really fun to see all the cool foods that people can eat while they're learning and getting their CME credits and all the other things. Plus we're in downtown DC. So we're a few steps from the White House, a couple steps from the mall. It's a really fun time to be here. Absolutely. And look, you know, that, that comment about the food, that is not a throwaway comment. I've been to this conference now. This will be, I think, my fourth time there. And the food outdoes itself every single year. And I have tasted some of what Dustin and his team at the Universal Meals Program has whipped up. And I mean, these recipes are off the charts. It is, they are going to be worth the price of admission alone. So pcrm.org slash ICNM, August 18th through the 20th. So many great speakers on stage. We're going to be recording so many episodes of the show, doing a lot of them live as well. Uh, you, you mentioned Dr. Kim Williams. Uh, he and I were emailing earlier this week. He's 100% locked in. Can't wait to, uh, to join us for that. So pcrm.org slash ICNM. And we definitely do hope to see you there. And Dr. Barnard, uh, I definitely appreciate you being here today, my friend. This has been fantastic. Well, thank you, Chuck. Thanks for all that you do to in inspire and educate so many people. You're a lifesaver. So it's great to be doing the show again with you, Chuck. Right back at you. And also a huge thank you to the Gregory J. Ryder Memorial Fund for their continued support of the Exam Room Live and the Physicians Committee, which makes our critical work, including this very episode, possible. You know, the Gregory J. Ryder Memorial Fund supports organizations just like the Physicians Committee that carry on Greg's love for animals by promoting plant-based health and working to end animal abuse while emphasizing programs that promote systemic change and also benefit people. You can visit them online right now at GregoryRyderFund.org. That's Gregory Ryder, spelled R-E-I-T-E-R, fund.org. And while you're there, sign up for their newsletter. And when I'm telling you that they're doing some extraordinary work, believe you me, they are doing that. And that's why you're going to want to get this newsletter so you can keep a rundown of everything that Allison and her team are working on there. So GregoryRyderFund.org is the web address to go to to sign up for that and see all the wonderful things that they're working on.
I get so many messages from exam roomies wondering how they can join us for the exam room live, and it's really easy. All you need to do is set a reminder for noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, every Wednesday. Join us on the Physicians Committee's YouTube channel or Facebook page. That is when we go live, and you can find links to both right now in the episode notes. Coming up next Wednesday, Cyrus Kambata from Mastering Diabetes will be here on the program, so get your questions ready right now. And also coming up on the podcast next week, vegan comedian Mike Kaplan will be here. And Mike, you may have seen him. He's done everything from Letterman to The Tonight Show to Last Comic Standing and America's Got Talent. He's been all over the place. And now he will be with us on the exam room to talk about the humor of being vegan, the funny side of it. And yeah, (laughs) we can be a weird bunch sometimes, can't we? (laughs) And we're also going to be chatting about his podcast. I love this title, Broccoli and Ice Cream. Broccoli and Ice Cream is the name of his show. And yes, there is a reason for that duality. So that's coming up on the next episode of the Exam Room Podcast. So if you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you get your shows, so you don't miss that interview with Mike Kaplan, the vegan comedian. And when you subscribe, please also leave a five-star rating and a nice review. Way back in 1959, Eddie Cochran sang that there ain't no cure for the summertime blues. The thing is, though, they didn't know what we know now. Interesting research is emerging on depression and your diet. So let's get that scoop right now from the Exam Room News Desk. A cure for the blues is actually quite colorful itself. That is according to new research from the UK showing that people who eat fruit as a regular part of their diet are less likely to report feeling depressed. A study of more than 400 adults shows it's not just how much fruit you eat, but how often you eat it, as the biggest benefits appear to come from eating it every day as opposed to binging on one big bowl of fruit once or twice a week. Researchers also say those who indulged in savory, unhealthy foods such as potato chips were more likely to suffer from stress, anxiety, depression, and experience so-called everyday mental lapses. Lead researcher Nicola Jane Tuck says she believes the mental health boost from fruit may be attributed to antioxidants, fiber, and essential nutrients that it contains, all of which have previously been linked to optimal brain function. There's a link to that study right now in the episode notes. Now, I have a few more stats on depression that really emphasize the importance of these findings. So here in the U.S. in the year 2020, 21 million adults had a major depressive episode. And that is when their depression lingered for at least two weeks. And for adolescents, the rate of depression is even higher, with 17% of kids between the ages of 12 and 17 reporting having had at least one major bout of depression that year. And those findings come from the National Institute of Health. Depression, by the way, also far more common among women and girls, regardless of age. And all of that is why Tuck says, quote, it's definitely worth trying to get into the habit of reaching for that bowl of fruit. Indeed it is. 
And for today, that is going to wrap things up. I would like to say thank you one more time to Dr. Neil Barnard for helping to raise our health IQs and boost our immune system today. For everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based.